This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson. I'm co-presenting this edition. I'm Miguel Terran, joining you from Madrid in Spain. In this month's edition, we're focusing on the upcoming UN Convention on Biological Diversity meeting, which is taking place for the first part in China this October and later in April next year. IFAD's Jotsna Puri will be talking about how, with agriculture one of the major causes of biodiversity loss, can we balance biodiversity conservation with agricultural development? And René Ankafiat will be telling us all about the biodiversity advantage too. That's the latest report that looks at working biodiversity into development projects across the world. Also, we'll be talking to IFAD's Associate Vice President, Donald Brown, about the ongoing response to the pandemic across IFAD operations. Then we have news from Wageningen University in Netherlands. They've been examining the links between climate and nutrition throughout the food system and checking how that could help us design better development projects in the future for small-scale farmers. Also, Philip Limbery, Chief Executive of Compassion and World Farming, talks to us how he's encouraging companies to move to more environmental-friendly, humane and healthy farming. Coming up, there's also news from the high-tech side of farming as we talk to the people at Farm Smart. And we have news of Babangona in Nigeria, an organisation that's investing in the heart of rural communities in that country. And Joe Puri is back later in the programme to talk about women and youth and the intention action gap. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcast.ifad.org. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. The COVID pandemic continues apace with developing countries struggling to vaccinate the rural populations. IFAD is at the forefront of the work to build resilience in the rural communities so they can better cope with the health crisis that rubles on. Donald Brown is Associate Vice President at IFAD. He gave me an update on the situation. So it's con- it continues to be problematic. I mean, we saw a significant rise in uh, people without access to food in 2020, And that continues to be uh, a real issue in 2021, because not only with the impact of COVID, but also between conflict and a lot of extreme weather events in 2021, as you no doubt see in the news, rural communities are just continually continually dealing with uh, severe food insecurity and high high food prices. For example, we're seeing disruptive supply chains. We're seeing an increase in the cost of fertilizers, seeds, uh, and restriction movements. Um, So we expect that the severe impacts of food insecurity to carry well on into 2022. Um, And as we saw, see a number of countries in Latin America and Africa are still grappling with a third wave um, and, and the impact of that. Uh, and we're still not getting the vaccine coverage there. So I don't think that this pandemic and its impacts are going to go away anytime soon. But I suppose, you know, uh, there is a little bit of brightness on the horizon. You know, vaccines are starting to, uh, to come to developing countries. 
And I saw recently that FAO had predicted that crop production would pick up over the coming seasons, given favorable weather conditions. So we have to just hope that that will help uh, with the food security situation. How is IFAD's response developing in response to all of this? So uh, we've now financed 62 projects and only have a small amount of funds left to allocate. So our focus is turning really to ensuring that the projects we have are being implemented uh, effectively and that they are all finished by the time we reach our completion date in June 2022. and while we're providing short-term support, a number of the recent projects are starting to look more at the kind of rebuilding phase. So two examples, uh, we had a regional project recently agreed in Latin America and the Caribbean that's investing in fintech and agritech businesses to increase the access of their services to smallholders. And so this will help not only overcome the COVID-19 challenges, but also look at a more medium, longer term to support uh, rural Uh, smallholders. Another one which we're particularly excited about is a new project for the Pacific region, which is going to be co-funded with the government of Australia and also the UN's COVID-19 Response and Recovery Fund. And in this one, we'll be teaming up not only with Australia, but with the ILO, UNDP, UNESCO and WFP to provide a range of uh, short and medium term uh, services, for example, access to inputs, markets, digital services, etc., So that one, I think we're particularly excited about. Um, We continue to look at uh, repurposing uh, and we've uh, repurposed over 200 million in 37 countries and also on policy support. And actually on the policy support, we're now looking certainly in a number of Asian countries at doing some studies on sort of post lockdown issues uh, to support the next phase of the recovery uh, on that side of things. And moving forward, obviously, we have to be responsive to the changing demands from governments and, and work with other RBAs to meet them. Uh, and, and the COVID-19 response, if we try and look at the positives, has certainly opened up many new uh, partnerships and areas for collaboration, particularly with the RBAs, but also with other partners. And we should build on that in the recovery phase. Um, and I am proud of the fact that uh, our normal development projects, despite covid have continued to maintain their performance uh, and we continue to track them closely. Um, And as the restrictions ease, I hope we can get back out more into the field again. So with the the CBD COP, the Convention on Biological Diversity taking place in October, how would you say IFAD is working to better balance environmental concerns with improvements in production? So this is a really important uh, conference of parties, uh, biodiversity is so key. And EFAD has been at the forefront of this over the last few years, not least with our work with uh, farmer organizations, particularly indigenous peoples, where we um, are, manage the uh, indigenous peoples forum. And we have a meeting every, every couple of years on that, a, a big important global meeting. Um, because obviously reversing biodiversity loss and its impacts is, is key, and particularly for, for, for the rural uh, population who are at the forefront of this. And, you know, and so it's going to be important also, as not only as an outcome for meetings, but for EFAD to be able to uh, show our work on promoting biodiversity uh, uh, and environmental management. 
And, uh, you know, the smallholders are some of the key custodians of the world's uh, biodiversity. And so they will be pivotal to any post-2020 uh, global biodiversity framework. That was IFAD's AVP, Donald Brown. Coming up now, we have an in-depth look at the upcoming UN Convention on Biological Diversity meeting in China. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, in the studio in Rome, and Miguel Terran joining via Zoom from Madrid. The 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity takes place in Kunming, China, in October. I asked IFA's Director for Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion, Joe Puri, to tell me what were her expectations, resolutions and what results is she going to share during CBD COP15. We are planning to launch IFA's flagship publication on biodiversity uh, that informs everyone on what biodiversity means to IFAD, but hopefully also setting the standard for what it should mean to international organizations as well as to countries where we work. The subtitle of our flagship publication is Biodiversity for Sustainable Livelihoods and Food Systems, which basically says that it's really important for biodiversity to be included in almost all of the investments that we do, especially because of our target groups who are small-scale farmers and because we are focusing on healthy and sustainable agricultural production systems. There are two quick messages that I want to highlight. One, that this report will also be bringing out. The first, that food production systems can benefit significantly from biodiversity being incorporated into it, primarily because biodiversity can benefit and food systems can benefit from traditional knowledge and scientific knowledge. And second, that small-scale farmers and rural poor play a very important role in protecting and enhancing biodiversity. So they depend very directly on these resources, but we are also dependent on them to enhance biodiversity. So we'll be highlighting both of these messages in our report. In terms of developing a new biodiversity framework for the next years, what is EFAS focus? So we are essentially going to be focusing on agroecological systems, which and underscoring or highlighting their role as a key element in building resilience for rural families and livelihoods. And this is primarily because, as you know, IFAD's overall focus group or targeted groups are rural poor, and agroecological systems can provide a win-win solution at every level. So at the genetic level, at the species level, and at the ecosystem level. We are also going to be talking and focusing on the role of biodiversity, but importantly, the role of biodiversity loss and how it affects small-scale producers worldwide. Uh, if you look at the Partidas Gupta review, it highlights the importance of biodiversity and the importance of incorporating the values of biodiversity into all of our lives and pricing it. So uh, the focus for IFAD and the focus on biodiversity and its interaction with IFAD's investments becomes even more important. How are small-scale farmers impacted by biodiversity loss and what is IFAD doing to help them? They face a lot of challenges, including biodiverse degradation, desertification, pollution, etc. But a large number of factors contribute to the denudation of biodiversity in the context where uh, our target groups or small-scale farmers live, right? And this is mainly because they have limited access to tenure rights, uh, to productive assets, to 
water and land resources. They don't have recognition of traditional production practices. They also don't have access to seed systems or animal breeding systems. There's insufficient investment, not just in research, but also in sustainable production practices, in increasing their own awareness with respect to new technologies, in extension services, and they also have limited access to markets. What we are doing to really help them is incorporating biodiversity co-benefits into our own program of loan and grants. Can you give me an example of EFED projects that have supported ecosystem restoration? I can give you a couple of examples. So program in Eswatini, which is called Restoration of Wetlands and Community-Based Biodiversity Conservation is taking place there. We've got a smallholder market-led project, which has been co-funded by the Global Environment Facility. And in in this area, we basically focused on the threats to biodiversity emanating from extraction of fuel wood and the destruction of natural habitats. So within the short period that um, EFAD has been there, we have been able to establish conservation areas. We've also helped communities build community-based structures where they can help to reduce the degradation of these systems. In another example in Gambia, which is mangrove restoration, EFAD is helping to restore mangroves to help regenerate biodiversity and income. And this is through the National Agricultural Land and Water Management Development Project, where EFAD has made really significant investments in mangroves and forest restoration. And mangroves have this unique ability to help communities become far more resilient, but also desalinate the water within which they are planted. That was Jyotsina Puri, Director of the Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion Division in EFAD. Jo will be back later in the programme when she talks about engaging with women and youth and the Intention Action Gap. Next up, we're looking at a fresh report, The Biodiversity Advantage 2. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, in Rome and Miguel Turan joining us via Zoom from Madrid. The Biodiversity Advantage 2 is IFAD's latest report on biodiversity and agriculture. It'll be released in time for the CBD meeting in China this October. It's all about the importance of biodiversity for small-scale farmers and how it's crucial to achieve a healthy and sustainable agricultural production system. IFAD's René and Kafiad explain how the report looks through five IFAD projects where biodiversity is a major consideration. I asked René, with the pandemic affecting the income of rural communities, why should biodiversity be more of a consideration than maximising yields? Uh, I think we need to be smart to have a long-term perspective on biodiversity to use the resources we have in the best way possible in order for us not to compromise the future quality of life. To maximize income does not necessarily mean you need to use agricultural practices that are bad for the environment. There is always something that you can do to improve biodiversity. We also have examples where indigenous peoples have developed advanced techniques to use and manipulate ecosystem functions and also characteristics of different species to boost production and to keep pests down. So there are definitely things we can learn from from here and combine this traditional knowledge with scientific knowledge in order to make food production more sustainable. Um, What are the top two key messages from Biodiversity and Latitude 2? 
and how has it moved on since Vice Versity Advantage won? Well, I would say the top two key messages are that our food production systems uh, do benefit from biodiversity in multiple ways. It also says that small-scale farmers and other rural poor depend very directly on these resources. So biodiversity supports food production through, for example, soil formation and land productivity. It helps control pests and diseases, and it also provides pollination services. There are studies that have linked genetic diversity also with improved yields in, in commercial crops. And we don't understand all these links yet, but there are, there are strong indications of the positive effects of biodiversity in agricultural systems. And uh, this is not confined only to food and natural resources. There's also a strong link with water catchment that includes natural forests and wetlands and, and peatlands. So how is IFAD helping small farmers practically farm better at the same time as conserving biodiversity? And these case studies, they show how IFAD has been tackling uh, the challenges of protecting and enhancing ecosystems while increasing their benefits to smallholders and, and also to global benefits. The case studies, uh, they are from various contexts, but they have a number of common features. We can see how they include the reducing of direct pressures on biodiversity through sustainable smallholder agriculture. They also show that in increasing communities' nutritional security through the promotion of agrobiodiversity. A lot of neglected and underutilized species that can contribute to a better nutritional status. Also using a, a participatory approach that builds on the capacities that rural people have. And this empowers them by developing solutions that are culturally sensitive and uh, appropriate to the target groups of each product that helps uh, improve their livelihoods. And then actively, actively seeking out opportunities for the most vulnerable uh, populations, such as women and indigenous peoples, for example, to improve their livelihood um, and participate in decision-making. And just following that, um, can you share some examples of how IFAD is put into practice with women and indigenous people? Yeah, well, uh, there, there are strong links between gender and biodiversity. And, and this can, these are found, for example, in the diversification of production, of market access, of farming systems and practices that conserve habitats and also community natural resources management where women play a strong role. Indigenous women, for example, often already have the knowledge um, required to sustainably manage natural resources and conserve agrobiodiversity. And IFAD makes an effort to make use of that knowledge where possible to inform project actions. And here, community natural resources management is often used as an opportunity to involve women in decision-making uh, processes and to encourage them to take on leadership roles in, in related organizations. So this has wider implication than just for biodiversity. Uh, we also have ecosystem restoration activities such as development of tree nurseries and planting that provide jobs for both women and, and youth. That was Renee Ankafiad, and you can check out the full report on the IFAD website. 
Please tune in to any of our 24 podcasts and 200 plus reports from across the world of Farms Food Future. In episode 23, we heard from Ertherin Cousins about food systems for the future. In episode 21, we spoke with the UN Food System Summit Deputy Chief Martin Frick. And throughout episode 21 to 23, we heard from nine small-scale farmers from around the world. Next month, in episode 25, we'll have more on climate change and farming as we head into the UNFCCC COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow. But next, we have news of fresh research from Wanganingen University on climate, food and better development. You're listening to Farms Food Future. Sane Bakar is a food and nutrition security advisor with the Wageningen Centre for Development at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. They've been working with IFAD to examine the links between climate and nutrition through the food system and how that could help us design better development projects in the future. I asked Sane, what were the main findings? Well, we've learned that climate and nutrition are very much interlinked and uh, climate change is really about to uh, give us a setback when it comes to all the achievements that we've um, made in the field of food and nutrition security, the levels of malnutrition, the level of hunger. We were making progress, but it seems like climate change is really going to, um, yeah, to hamper these results. And the other way around, the nutritional status of people, the the type of diets that they have, they very strongly determine the kind of production systems that are used, which then have an effect on climate change as well. So what we learned is that, um, well, we we went to three different countries. So we did the research in Ghana, in Lesotho, and in Zimbabwe. And in all these three countries, we have, um, yeah, we've studied of how climate and nutrition are interlinked at at different levels in in the household, but also within the food system. And we, yeah, by doing these sort of explorative studies, we showed a way of how in the future situational analysis that uh, inform the project design or the design of the COSOPs, how they can be informed by a thorough analysis where these linkages are taken into account. And then we've also, in our literature review, we have made a whole overview of a long list of interventions that can be implemented and that can have co-benefits, actually. So that can improve both climate change outcomes and nutrition outcomes. What would be the any concrete actions that that you would recommend? I would recommend to... uh, make sure that these, this nexus is integrated in all steps of the project cycle, um, but make sure that whatever you do is very much tailored to the context where you work. We, we saw that, the, for example, in Ghana, there's a lot of flooding as a result of climate change, um, which results in people not being able to access nutrition and health services. But in Zimbabwe, you have to think of um, intense droughts and crop production, which is being reduced, a monotonous diet. So uh, we really recommend to each and every step of the, of the project cycle to take the findings into account, um, to, well, in, in design stage, make sure that in your analysis, you have within your team, people that can represent the different fields of expertise, climate experts, nutrition experts, gen experts, youth experts, but also, breaking the silos between these different uh, fields. And 
actually that was a really nice outcome of this project as well. We had a, a training for um, IFAT staff from headquarters, uh, PMUs, uh, regional bureaus, and we really tried to, to, to break the silo, develop a common language um, where we literally ask each other, yeah, you nutritionists, you're always talking about healthy diet, but what is, what is that actually a healthy diet? So I think that's the first step. And then when you have these kind of teams, more multi-sectoral teams, um, then you can look at, uh, do a thorough situation analysis. When you pick out interventions, you can sure make sure that you manage the trade-offs because what's good for nutrition might not always have a positive uh, inflect, um, impact on climate change. Just thinking about uh, red meat production, for example. Um, but to also look at um, and to document the, the good practices, but also the failures, because when we did our literature review, we found so much, so many projects that report on uh, only good practices, but we know the failures must be out there. But it's very hard to, to find them. So we would encourage to, to do both. That was Sane Baka from Wageningen University. Please send news on your failures to us here at Farms Food Future and we'll pass them on to the researchers at Wageningen. And you can find out more about those findings at www.ifad.org under nutrition. And there's a sprightly explainer video on YouTube. Just search the Climate Nutrition Nexus and it should pop up. Coming up, we'll be talking compassion and farming. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Brian Thompson in the studio in Rome and me, Miguel Turan, down the line from Madrid, Spain. Now it's time to talk to Philip Limbury, Chief Executive of Compassion in World Farming, a leading international farm, animal welfare and environmental organization. Compassion in World Farming strives for healthy foods and runs programs encouraging companies to move to more environmentally friendly, humane and healthy farming. Philip explained to our reporter, Kelia Carvalho, what that means, how factory farming is hurting the planet and animals and how small scale farmers are central figures in changing food systems. Compassion in World Farming uh, sets out to end factory farming. We want to see an end to the keeping of animals in, in confinement, uh, in cages, in feedlots, uh, in favour of humane food systems where the animals can enjoy their lives as part of rotational outdoor farms, or at the very least, indoor farms without cages. And what we also want to see is uh, fewer farmed animals in the system. Uh, this is in recognition of the fact that globally we're producing far more meat than is good for our health and for the planet. So really what we're looking for is a convergence uh, of uh, planetary health, human health, and animal health through ending factory farming, through having sustainable and healthy diets for everyone that is much less dependent on, on heavy meat uh, consumption and instead is much more uh, rooted in a, uh, an environmentally friendly, nature friendly, animal friendly way of producing food, uh, which is uh, you know, respects the soil and respects the intrinsic value of animals as sentient beings. 
I've read some of the articles where you criticize uh, factory farming. Can you elaborate on that? And how does it threaten the planet and individuals alike? Well, factory farming is a big deal in anyone's book. In fact, you know, there is a lot of uh, discussion about climate change, about the collapse of nature, uh, and about health and pandemics. What is often overlooked is one of the biggest factors at the center of all of those problems is factory farming. Uh, the fact that we're producing now 80 billion farmed animals every year for our food system. So for every person alive, uh, there is 10 Uh, farmed animals being reared and slaughtered every year. And uh, most of them, two thirds at least, are kept in factory farms. So factory farming is the biggest cause of animal cruelty on the planet. It is also a major driver of wildlife declines. And it's a, a big contributor to climate change too. And then, uh, then when we come to pandemics, Uh, remember that keeping animals in confinement in large numbers provides the perfect breeding ground for disease, for the emergence of new and more deadly viruses. And it's no, no surprise then that 10 years ago, there was a pandemic that swept the world, swine flu, that emerged from the factory farms of the Americas. Now, um, COVID-19 is widely uh, thought to have emerged from the, from the ill treatment of wildlife. Uh, but nevertheless, because factory farming increases in intensity, uh, increases in the number of animals kept, increases in, in the amount of, of the globe that uh, it occupies, factory farming is likely to be the source of the next pandemic. So if, uh, you know, if we're finding it tough uh, with lockdown, uh, then, you know, we better get used to it because factory farming could well uh, be responsible for the lockdowns of the future. What can small farmers and general consumers of meat do to help change the impact or diminish the impact that factory farming has on the planet? What is their importance? I think that the role of small farmers is hugely important uh, because factory farming is essentially industrial animal agriculture. It's large scale farming, replacing human intervention with capital, with um, throwing money uh, in the form of pesticides and fertilizers and cages and machinery uh, on, on a very large scale. It's the antithesis of uh, creating a decent environment for animals or small farmers. So I think the future really does depend on governments and corporations and the United Nations getting behind the, uh, the, the small farm community globally, supporting them in what you know, so often is re small scale regenerative farming, which is better for animals, better for people and better for the planet. And what can we do as consumers? Well, we can all take action to help small farmers to help animals, to help the environment. We can take that action three times a day through our food choices by choosing to eat more plants, less and better meat, making sure that that better meat 
all milk and eggs comes from small farms, comes from pasture fed, comes from free range, comes from regenerative and organic sources. This is the way for a wholesome, uh, humane uh, and future fit food system. So small farmers are a critical component to resetting uh, our food system. I'm hugely hopeful the United Nations Food Systems Summit. I'm hugely hopeful that the, the conversation around transforming the food system will be the trigger for that big conversation, which brings small farmers back out from the margins of political thought, back into centre stage uh, by helping us to end factory farming, to restore uh, nature-friendly, humane, farming systems everywhere across the planet and you know the real prize is in doing so it will not only help small farmers to survive and to thrive it would also save the food system for future generations that was philip limbury speaking to kelia carvalho up next we're going to farm smart This is Farms Food Future. FarmSmart is an agritech startup founded by Alia Malik in 2018. It works towards promoting sustainable agriculture through an interactive user-focused app that teaches smallholder farmers how to thrive off any plot of land. They partner with organizations who are looking for a way to reach their farmers digitally. The app can then be used to target specific communities with the knowledge the organisation would like to spread, from agriculture to agroforestry and aquaculture to apiculture. I spoke to Alia Malik and asked how the idea first came about. I think like many projects, it was born iterations. You know, I had the idea that I wanted to create an app for smallholders to use that was enjoyable for smallholders to use kind of ages ago. And then I ended up working for an organisation that um, was working with regenerative agricultural practices in coastal Kenya. And they had a smartphone app and they wanted to improve it. And so I was working with them to improve it. And we um, ended up deciding to develop an entirely new app and then to spin that off into what's now FarmSmart. So it sort of, it happened in stages. How can your app help a small scale farmer in a developing country, actually make a better living for themselves? You know, there are a few ways. Um, so what I mentioned before about our user interface is, is really key to that. So we want the technology to be easy to use without training. Um, and even it should answer questions before the questions about how to improve the growing of some particular crop, which is what to grow. So when any user download the app they talk to our chat box and they talk about what they want to do um, whether it's growing for subsistence whether it's growing for making some livelihoods or for a commercial enterprise and then where they are and their sort of soil conditions and from there the app goes on to recommend what to grow so optimizing things that if they're trying to make money from sales that have uh, decent returns in that area um, and are possible to grow. The aim isn't always just to maximize yields, but it's also sometimes to build resilience in times of crisis. Is, is that something that is worked into the app as well? 
Um, absolutely. So, you know, all of the growing techniques that we um, that we provide through the app are are focusing on, you know, growing with, um, you know, moving away from chemical agriculture and growing with regenerative practices, um, using what's nearby and available um, to get better yields. And, you know, many farmers in some area, they might just want to grow maize because it's the far, the crop that all of their neighbors grow. But actually, there might be things that they can put into the soil that will um, replenish nitrogen levels or will, um, you know, get, diff- you know, better yields without having to add any chemical fertilizer and pesticide. So what we really want to do is equip farmers to use the resources around them to grow, which in the end is really about enhancing their resilience. So, so far, where is the app working and, and how's it working out? So the app was originally designed to work in Kenya, but as we started developing it, we we started a practice there and we worked extensively with an agronomist um, to make sure there um, are applicable uh, plants and techniques for different Kenyan zones. And we also are organized in a way that we could uh, replicate the app anywhere. And we sort of see doing that with partners and other organizations. So in the last year, we've also expanded <laughs> incidentally to French Polynesia um, because there was a not-for-profit that was working with um, fisher folk in French Polynesia that wanted to um, train people in basic approaches to kitchen gardens. And so we were able to uh, fine-tune the app for, for that audience as well. I mean, it's, it's going well, but we really... So we, the way that our app is designed, we really work through other organizations who have presence on the ground and are working directly with farmers. So looking to the, the future, how do you see technology, the app itself, evolving as we move forward in the use of small, being used by small-scale farmers? You know, I think that, you know, as things develop, you know, the way that I envision Farm Smart evolving with um, sort of modernization of, of the sort of the virtual farm that complements what the farmer's doing in the real world. Um, there's a sort of suite of systems. You know, the, the farmers need all sorts of access to, um, you know, education opportunities, access to loans that meet their needs, whether it's to send their kids to school, pay school fees now, whether it's to acquire good seed, um, so we kind of see FarmSmart being one piece in a larger ecosystem um, where farmers get the services they need, even if they're operating um, at a very small scale. Thank you to Alia Malik, and you can find out more at www.farmsmart.co. Now it's time for us to talk to the people at Babangona. This is Farms Food Future. Rural businesses are getting a much-needed boost from an ambitious new financing program launched by IFAD. The private sector financing program aims to increase private investments in small and medium-sized enterprises. Also, farmers' organizations and financial mediators servicing small-scale farmers. Its first loan of $5 million is to Nigerian social impact enterprise Babangona, which has a strong background in successfully moving small-scale farmers from subsistence to a more market-orientated model. 
The loan will help them support 377,000 small-scale rice and maize producers in Nigeria with a comprehensive package of training, quality inputs and marketing services. Babangona will also store and sell the harvest on behalf of its farmers when prices are higher. Babangona, which means better your life, is an organisation that uses agriculture to tackle the root cause of economic and social insecurity in Nigeria. They believe that farmers are constantly worried about tomorrow and that poverty has trapped many of them in a very difficult life. I spoke to Kola Masha, one of the founders of Babangona, and I asked him what was the inspiration that got all this started. Fundamentally, uh, we believe that uh, as oxygen is to fire, so are unemployed youth to insecurity. And uh, we have a tremendous number of unemployed youth uh, in Nigeria, about 80 million coming into the workforce from 2010 to 2030. And so for us, the inspiration was basically to ensure that we could provide uh, an economic opportunity for as many of those uh, young people coming into the workforce as possible in that period of time. How do you try to show young people in rural communities in particular the potential of working in the agricultural sector? Young people are very entrepreneurial. And, um, and so what we try to do at Babangona is basically provide them a platform to really unleash that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, the model is designed specifically to uh, meet the needs of, uh, of younger farmers. Uh, you know, younger farmers tend to have, you know, uh, even greater challenges uh, than older farmers. Uh, typically, they have smaller plots of land uh, due to inheritance practices. Uh, they have relatively limited uh, to no savings, uh, and uh, they uh, also tend to have higher labor costs. And so uh, the model is designed specifically to address those, those additional challenges. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, despite the fact that the average age for a farmer uh, in Nigeria is, uh, I think the government estimates to be 50 to 55 years old, uh, uh, we have consistently uh, seen that, uh, that uh, we have uh, over 45% uh, of our members that are youth. Babangona has a track record of moving small-scale farmers from subsistence to a more market-orientated model through an innovative agricultural franchise model. Can you tell me how you do that exactly? Uh, so Babangona is designed to basically uh, address the underlying structural problem why small-scale farmers are poor. Uh, and that is their low economies of scale. And we bring economies of scale to them through a model we've developed we call an agricultural franchise, where we franchise a network of grassroots-level farmer cooperatives, and we support uh, each and every member of those cooperatives with a complete end-to-end -end package to enable them to be highly profitable and productive. Uh, we started in 2012 supporting uh, just about 100 farmers. Uh, today, we are, have grown to become the single largest maize producing entity uh, in Africa, uh, farming this year with our members over 140,000 acres, uh, supporting uh, over 85,000 members uh, this year. Um, and so uh, we've consistently been able to enable our members to achieve net incomes that are more than two times national average by providing a holistic package that uh, impacts all levers of net income for them. Uh, we provide them uh, training, financing, 
inputs, all the inputs they need, complete end-to-end -end holistic package, uh, including all the way down to the, uh, from the highest quality seeds uh, and other uh, products they need, all the way down to harvesting services, including the needle and thread that they use to sew up their bag. And then finally, we help them store their product and uh, sell that product at uh, premium prices. What would you say amongst these amazing results are the ones that you're most proud of from the investments in rural communities? Well, I'd say um, for me, uh, it, I, I'm, I truly feel blessed uh, to be able to uh, work with an organization that is having so much impact because I think the individual stories that I hear when we you know, talk to our members who uh, started with us uh, farming just a few, uh, maybe uh, you know, just a couple acres, and today that individual uh, has been able to grow their farm dramatically, uh, increase their family's income, not just by uh, doubling the net income on their existing acreage, but the fact that they've uh, been with us now seven, eight, nine years, and they're seeing you know, the fact they're able to invest their profits to grow their acreage over time. So Babangona is now working with IFAD. What will the investment here be used for? So uh, IFAD's investment uh, is going to be exceptionally catalytic. Uh, basically, uh, IFAD has come in to a, um, into a round of financing uh, that will catalyze in uh, an additional $60 million in total financing that will enable us to scale our operations uh, to support uh, over an additional uh, 300,000 farmers over the, next, uh, over the next two to three years. That was Kola Masha from Babagona. Up next, Joe Puri is back. You're listening to Farms Food Future. One of EFAD's main goals is to achieve equality in agriculture. So creating programs that are focused on female farmers is an important step in this direction. But on its own, giving women access to these programs is not enough. We also have to give them the same leadership opportunities if we want to close the gender gap. IFAD's Director for Environment, Climate and Social Inclusion, Joe Puri, told Eco Soundbites podcast that we need to include women in the decision process of those programmes. And she explained what IFAD is doing to achieve that. Here, I think uh, the key thing also to recognise is that uh, the other part where we were talking with women um, and I also want to talk very briefly about that. So in term, women and women's empowerment um, is a very important uh, focus for um, IFAD. Um, and in this area, especially given both women's current workloads and burdens, as well as their traditional access to resources and control of productive assets, including say technologies and land means that they don't really traditionally have the kind of voice, the kind of um, income and um, the kind of time. Uh, so the equal work part of IFAD's own thinking about women's empowerment becomes really important. And so we focused on all three of those things during our engagement, right? So ensuring and thinking about their voices um, and, uh, and thinking about and also eliciting a large part of this interaction is also about elicitation. Eliciting their own thoughts as well as uh, thoughts from 
you know, people who are not women, um, about, um, about voice, about uh, empowerment through income, and about um, time and time burdens, uh, so that this could be incorporated into, um, into the overall design of the program. So for example, in the insurance program, there is a specific mention of including women and youth and targeting them very specifically in terms of giving them incentives to not just have access and have available insurance and banking ability, but really uh, for to create the incentives for them to be able to use it. And that, you know, that gap between intention and use is, a, is I think, a recognized one, but not an often operationalized gap. Right. So people recognize that, yes, there are good intentions, but programs have to translate that on the ground. And we call that the last mile gap. And so that's something that needs to be overcome um, as we as we design, but also implement this program. So recognizing that um, the first step of overcoming that intention action gap is really ensuring that there is engagement right at the beginning. And uh, the last point I wanted to make on uh, on this point about um, engagement was really um, the the willingness of private and public insurance companies, as well as of governments, to participate and assume responsibility. Um, that that is really going to be the mainstay of the success of the program. So I mean, it's been approved, but um, I think our key focus is now on implementation and ensuring results, and that will be predicated to a large extent on uh, our our private sector and public sector partners, as well as uh, of course smallholder farmers themselves, but also governments, so that uh, there is adaptive management, so that there is uh, a mitigation of technical risks, which are, you know, which are definitely going to appear and there are going to be some unknown unknowns as well. So it's really important that that part of our partner group um, um, is also uh, aware and is able to robustly manage this as we go along. Thanks to Joe Puri. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporter, Kayla Carvalho, and everyone else who's worked on this programme. But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. Coming up, the UN's Climate Summit will be the major focus as it's held in November. So we'll be looking at climate and food security in Podcast 25. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about all stories and issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at efad.org and send us your voice or text messages to the address and we'll be happy to play you in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of October with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Miguel Turan and the team here at IFAD, thanks for listening.